From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's interesting, fun, and if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, here with John Wells. Our first guest this morning is Sean Carroll, a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology and host of the popular Mindscape podcast and a best-selling author. Sean's new book, newest book, is The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. Then our second guest this morning is Randall Monroe, who's the number one New York Times best-selling author of What If? And he's back answering more of the weirdest questions you never thought to ask in his new book, What If 2. Our guest is Sean Carroll, a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology. He's the host of the popular Mindscape podcast and a best-selling author. We last spoke with Carroll in September 2019 about his book, Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time. Sean is back with us today to to talk about his new book, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. Sean Carroll, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Thanks very much for having me. It's really nice to have you back. And roughly 70 to 75% of our listeners are curious laypeople that want to hear about popular science, but they also want to dip their toes in a bit in the deep end of expert knowledge. Are they your target audience for this book? They are precisely the target audience. A, A big motivating factor for me writing these books was the impression that there is a little bit of a gap in how we discuss physics to a wider audience. Either we assume that it's a popular level discussion and we're afraid of using equations and we're going to give you stories and analogies and metaphors. And look, I've done that and it's really important and it's fun and you can learn a lot that way. Or we assume that you're a physics student and you're going to college and you're going to take years and years of classes and do problems and become a professional. But there are people in between there who want more than just the stories, but don't want to become a professional physicist. And what I realized is we can teach all the good parts. (laughs) We can explain all the fun parts of physics with the equations without giving you any homework. And that makes it much easier to get to the fun parts more quickly. Yeah. Uh, You know, in science education, um, getting people, uh, getting these, uh, some of these difficult concepts uh, to the curious layperson is not easy. And I think you do a really good job of it. I I can think of one other person that does a pretty good job. That's Michio uh, Kaku. Um, But you two seem to really be able to boil things down. And one of the things that you did in your book, which really helped me, was my reptilian brain, which is, you know, this linear thing that I, I constantly think about, uh, about where I am uh, in three dimensions. I've got up and down, I've got back and forth, and I've got side to side. And when you said in the book, start thinking about yourself, add that fourth dimension, that element of time, that event of space-time. When I think about my position in the world, I constantly now think about it relative to uh, the time signature. And, 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 and that, for some reason, has helped me to get past some of these more difficult pieces. Well, I think that's a great point that you're making, because a lot of what is a barrier to understand these things is that our intuition changes. Our, our best 
theories of physics don't necessarily align with our usual way of thinking about the world. That's not very surprising because we press our experimental probes of the universe into regimes where you and I don't experience things every day, right? Moving near the speed of light, being billions of light years away, being as tiny as an atom. Of course, things will be unfamiliar and weird sounding. But I do think that we can update our intuitions a little bit. And the task of someone who's trying to explain physics is to remember what it was like to not understand these things deep in your bones and make those connections. So uh, it will always be different for different people. Some certain kinds of explanations will work for some and not for others. But, you know, I try to throw a little bit of the history and background in there, but also a little bit of the change of view that is required to really think about these things like the working physicist does. And what's the difference between the Newtonian model uh, of space-time and the Einstein model that introduces the relativity of, of, of space and time? I'd like to say that we could have invented and talked about the idea of space-time long before Einstein came on the scene. In Isaac Newton's way of thinking about physics, which was set up in the 1600s and ruled the roost for several centuries thereafter, you had space and you had time, and they were separate things. And what that means is you measure them separately and everyone agrees on the measurement. So if you and I synchronize our watches and we go off and perform some caper, they will still be synchronized, our watches, when they come back because we're measuring the same thing, we're measuring time. Then Einstein comes along and his collaborators and colleagues, it was, a, it was actually a group effort to put together the theory of relativity. And what he realizes is that space and time are both part of a single underlying thing called space-time. And the reason why that's a better way of thinking of it is different people will divide space-time up into space and time differently. And the way that, that manifests itself is that you and I can synchronize our watches, you stay home, I zip off near the speed of light and come back, and when we rendezvous, our watches have elapsed different amounts of time because they're not measuring something universal out there in the world. They're measuring a feature of our trajectory through the universe. Just like if you and I take different paths through space, we will travel different distances, even though we start and end at the same point. And Sean, I believe this is volume one. There's a couple of volumes that, uh, that may follow this book. That is the intent. In this volume, we do classical physics. Then we're hoping to do quantum physics uh, in volume two. And complexity and emergence in volume three. Yeah, and to our listeners, if you're enjoying this conversation, buy the book, but also feel free to uh, go take a look at some supplementary uh, materials. If you go to preposterousuniverse.com forward slash biggest ideas forward slash, you'll find a whole bunch of material and videos on these subjects and more. Um, and then folks are always saying to me, Sean, they're saying, well, who, who really cares about this, this time and place and, and those sorts of things? And, and when I think about Einstein's uh, time dilation, I mean, his fingerprints are all over today's technology. GPS, for an example, we could not have had it not been for Einstein and time dilation. Is that, is that correct? Well, it wouldn't have worked. We could have had it. <laughs> but given that there is time dilation in the world, we would have gotten it wrong. It would have taken only a matter of minutes for your GPS location to be way off if we did not understand how relativity works. But look, honestly, I, will, I would claim 
that that is true, but it's not why we care about these things. Even if relativity were not useful in GPS, which everyone, all the physicists like to brag about that, but even if it weren't, it would still be cool. Like, we didn't have GPS 20 years ago, but relativity was still really important because it explains the Big Bang and black holes and things like that. And I am absolutely convinced that human beings want to understand our world. It's the world that we live in. And whether or not it helps our lifestyle or standard of living, we're curious creatures. That's part of what makes us human. We want to do more than just survive. So to me, the reason these ideas are important is because it's the shared universe in which we all live and learning about it and talking about what we learn is a really important part of being human. So if we start to think about some of these concepts, what you're doing in this book is you're introducing uh, actual equations and we, we don't really have to go further than maybe a high school uh, education of, of algebra calculus to be able to start to understand these. Now there's Greek letters in some of these equations and some of these, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of heady, but I believe it is the, it, it is the promise of your book. If, if we stay patient and stay with the book that by the time we get to the end of it, we will understand not only why the equation is the way it is and what some of these, all of the elements are in the equation, but we can tip our, you know, uh, tip our uh, toe into into the waters of how to maybe even start solving these equations, or is that is that going to be beyond us? No, I think that's absolutely within people's grasp. The way I like to put it is, most people who are looking at this book and thinking should they buy it or not, they understand two plus two equals four, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. an equation right there, and no one has any real trouble grasping it. To understand the higher level equations, whether it's E equals MC squared or the general relativity equations or the equations of quantum mechanics or complexity is not an insuperable barrier. It's not a difference in kind. It's just a difference in degree. If you can understand two plus two equals four, you can understand Einstein's equation. And it's, it's work. It's a little bit of effort. You got to like put your brain, your thinking cap on and engage your brain and do it. But it's accessible if you put in that work. And the reward is amazing because like you said, you start to look at the world in a different way. I mean, especially the fact that, as I like to say, the equations are smarter than we are. <laughs> Once you have a good equation, it predicts things that you are not smart enough to predict. And that really gives you a handle on how nature works. I mean, we're very lucky that mathematics is so useful in describing the world, but therefore it pays off to put a little bit of effort into learning it. One of the things you said in your book, Sean, was that Einstein's equation doesn't just relate some specific collection of mass and energy, and I'm reading from the book, to the curvature of some specific space-time. It is a complete general relationship of the form. In other words, if you give me some distribution of mass and energy, I will be able to tell you how space-time curves in response to that. So it's not just a, a, a proof of the concept. It is, it is a tool to be able to find out what your, what your, where that event is in space-time. Yeah, I think that that's the great thing about these equations is that, you know, it's not just saying I have two apples and another two apples, therefore I have four apples. It's saying whenever I have two of anything and two of anything else, added to them, I'm going to have four of those things. Mm -hmm. And that general principle stretches over to the equations of physics that are describing space and time, like Einstein's equation. So it's not just that Einstein's equation describes 
the motion of the planets around the sun, although it does that. It describes the black hole at the center of our galaxy that we've observed recently with the Event Horizon Telescope. It describes what happens when two black holes spiral together and make gravitational waves. It describes the beginning of the universe near the Big Bang. And none of these things are things that Albert Einstein knew anything about. <laughs> when he wrote down the equation, he didn't know there was a Big Bang. He didn't know there were black holes. He didn't know there were gravitational waves. But by Inventing his theory of physics, it extended far beyond the original inspiration that he had for inventing it. It's just universal. That's the great thing about the laws of physics. And it's not just Einstein's equation. Newton's famous equation is F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. And that doesn't mean just the more force you put on something, the more acceleration it is. It means when you put on exactly twice as much force, there will be exactly twice as much acceleration. It's frighteningly quantitative and it applies every single time you put a force on anything. So that's a wonderful kind of power that you have if you understand what these equations are telling you. And you can get to the moon and back with that equation, can't you? People have, uh, as one of the astronauts famously said along the way, Sir Isaac Newton is at the controls now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, so when, when we think about, and I don't know if this is in the book or not, um, when we think about gravity, we know that, 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 that Newtonian physics and Einstein's physics are, are really the basis for our current understandings of gravity. And as we ponder this question of dark matter, or dark energy, uh, for that matter, uh, the, the, the two. Um, are we starting to think that maybe uh, our assumptions about gravity could be wrong or, or need to be tweaked? Well, anytime we do physics, the favorite thing for physicists to do is to imagine that their assumptions are wrong. <laughs> because yeah. you don't become famous in physics by showing that your predecessors were right. Yeah. You become famous in physics by showing how they were wrong and you can do better. That's what Einstein did with Isaac Newton. He didn't show that Newton was right. He showed that you could do even better than what Newton did. So many of us, including myself, have absolutely tried to play the game of replacing Einstein's equation with something better, something that would fit our current universe even better than Einstein's theory does. Sadly, the current, sadly for us, happily for Albert Einstein, the current state of the art is no one has out-Einsteined Einstein yet. The best way we have of explaining the data that we see is to imagine that Einstein was right and in addition to the matter that we know about and make in the laboratory here on Earth, there's other kinds of stuff out there in the universe, dark matter and dark energy. And when you think about it, why should that be surprising at all? Who is to say that the stuff that is easy for we human beings to make in our experiments should be all of the stuff in the universe? The universe doesn't care about our ability to observe things. It's going to make things hard for us. And the reward of figuring out is all the more good for that. Yeah. Uh, we had Bill Nelson on the program, the administrator at NASA, and he was saying that he really thought that James Webb was going to be such a game changer that it's going to uh, show us questions that we could ask that we can't even imagine asking today uh, so that it will present information that will bring us to uh, to a new level. And and so it's it it are things it is things like that 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 fascinate me and fascinates our audience at Cool Science Radio, all these different possibilities and all these people yeah. that are working on these things. 
Well, you know, my new, I just changed jobs this summer. Now I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm literally across the street from the Space Telescope Science Institute. So I'm contractually obligated to say nice things about the James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> but that's a very easy thing to do because it's an awesome new way of looking at yeah. the universe. And mm -hmm. astronomers have learned long ago that anytime we look at the universe in a new way, the universe surprises us. We see things we didn't anticipate. So it is true that the new space telescope will probably teach us new things. If people ask, well, what will it teach us? That's very hard to say because that's part of the fun is just being surprised. Honestly, the thing that I'm most looking forward to from the Webb Space Telescope is looking at planets around stars outside our own solar system because that's not going to tell us about the origin of the universe. That's a different part of the universe we're looking at. But we're beginning to home in on what we call these exoplanets, these other planets. How many of them are there? How big are they? What kind of atmosphere do they have? And we all know that this ultimately leads up to wondering, do any of them have life on them? And I think that AWST will begin to give us some hints in that direction, whether or not that's true. And uh, we'll follow up from there once we get the answer in. And we have some data, but is there any data that would suggest that we are a typical solar system or that we are not typical? It's funny, that's a great question because for a long time we only knew about our solar system. And so it, the natural thing to do is to assume that all the other solar systems are like ours. <laughs> and what we found is that, you know, they're not entirely dissimilar, but we're not completely typical either. You know, we have a pattern in our solar system where we have tiny little rocky planets near the sun, and then these big gas giants far away. And so that's, we assume that there was some reason why that had to be the case. But we're finding a lot of other systems with big gaseous planets near the sun, hot Jupiters, as they are called, because they're Jupiter-sized planets that are close to their local stars. And it's actually harder to find the small rocky planets, so we don't have as good a feeling for how many of them there are, but, but they're there. We've been able to find planets that are pretty darn similar to Earth as far as size and shape is concerned. So we have a long way to go to get enough data to really characterize what, what counts as a typical solar system, as a typical planet, but, and again, that's how science works. That's the fun part. There's no answers in the back of the book. You got to go look it up, figure it out yourself. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Sean Carroll, and he has written the biggest ideas in the universe, space, time, and motion. The book is being released today. If you've been listening to uh, this conversation, you probably figured out that Sean knows how to take uh, some big subjects and, and get them to our level, the, the uh, curious layperson's level. So uh, pick the book up. And again, if you want to take a look at, uh, at some of the other supplementary materials, you can go to preposterousuniverse.com forward slash biggest ideas forward slash. So let's talk about the book. Tell us how it's organized. Well, it's pretty simple. Every chapter is a big idea. So we go through change, conservation, space, time, space, time, gravity, a whole bunch of single ideas that we illustrate in different ways. And we use that as an excuse along the way to teach you, to teach you a whole bunch of little interesting things about physics, including things that really no other book at this level will try to get across. Different ways of characterizing classical mechanics, different ways of thinking about curves, space-time, and relativity. Uh, and at the end, the payoff is we learn Einstein's equation, 
that teaches us how space-time is pushed around by matter and energy. And then we use it to predict black holes. And we can show you the equation that was first written down by Carl Schwarzschild, a German astrophysicist, that predicts the existence of black holes. And the difference is, when you get that far, it is a payoff because... The equation is not that complicated. Schwarzschild's equation is not that complicated. And you can just look at it and see that something is going on at a certain place in the black hole, which now we call the event horizon, the boundary past which once you go in, you can never escape out. It's right there in the equation. You can't miss it. And you can wave your hands after the fact and say things about how you know gravity is so strong, you can't escape, blah, blah, blah. But the need for that kind of phenomenon is forced on us by trying to figure out how to solve this equation in the proper context. And by the end of the book, you will get that. You will feel that in your bones. And Sean, when you talk about these big ideas, and, and I know it's like choosing your children, but what one question would you like to have answered that has not been answered yet and you can go anywhere you want? Well, that's a very good question, but let me emphasize for the potential readers out there, my goal in these books is not to focus on the unanswered questions, the speculations that I, that I love mm -hmm. talking about, and I've talked yeah. about them a lot in my previous books, but the real hope is to talk about the things that will still be true a thousand years from now. Yes. Sadly, that's not everything. And, you know, if you think about book one of the biggest ideas series is classical physics and book two is quantum physics. There's a big gap between our understanding of gravity, book one, and our understanding of quantum mechanics in book two. We have not yet been able to reconcile our best understanding of gravity and our best understanding of quantum mechanics. So there, if there's one thing I'd like to know that I can't put in the book because we don't know it yet, it's how to have a single understanding of the universe that is seamless and unified that implies both quantum mechanics and Einstein's general theory of relativity. So you don't believe that uh, string theory is, is getting us somewhere possibly close to being that unifier? String theory is our best current idea along those lines. That doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't yeah. mean that we're done. You know, the great thing about string theory, one of its one of its assets, honestly, is that it keeps reinventing itself as we learn new things. So even if it's inspired by string theory, uh, the future ultimate answer might look very, very different than our current understanding of string theory today. Mm -hmm. Looking at these ideas in your book, the, the one thing that came to my mind was that the scientific process is not perfect, but boy, does it work and does it work well. And what, what I like about that, especially when I think about some of the uh, conversations that we have around the dinner table or Thanksgiving with our relatives and, and, and some of the divisive things going on, is that the scientific process is not about opinions, it's about data. And uh, when you all present data, you work really hard to take the opposite side, to take the same facts and try to prove the opposite. I mean, you're, you're, you're really trying to do diligence with it and if you get something wrong, that's that's okay. It may it may hurt your credibility a little bit, but 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 you you work to get it right. And then if you provide misinformation, you know your career is probably over. And so it's a very it's a very strict discipline in that sense. But it's based on data and not just opinions. Uh, would, would you like to uh, talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I think the way I like to put it is that physics is easy compared to almost any field of academic inquiry because nature doesn't let you get away with bad ideas. You can have bad ideas. That's easy enough to do. But ultimately, you have to go and ask nature whether or not the idea works or not. And for the most part, in a relatively short period of time, nature will come back with an answer. No, your idea doesn't work. Or yes, your idea does work. You know, when Einstein was inventing general relativity, he wasn't the only one who was trying to reconcile relativity with Newtonian gravity. There were other attempts. They didn't fit the data. They did not predict the deflection of light around the sun in the correct way. I have my own theories of, you know, gravity that have made predictions. And so far, they're not as good as Einstein's, right? And mm -hmm. that's something that is quite common among theoretical physicists. And you can't be upset about it because you try your best. You don't know ahead of time. Einstein could have been wrong, right? The standard model of particle physics, which is our wonderful theory that fits so much data that we have from particle accelerators, a big part of that was written down by Steven Weinberg, the famous physicist, in 1967. And he didn't even know that it was a promising idea. Like, he was just trying different things. It was one of the ideas he came up with. And it was kind of ignored for five years after he wrote it down until people found some more data and some better theoretical ideas. And they said, oh, my goodness, maybe this is on the right track. So... It's a wonderful process science because it's collaborative between people and between the universe. And that's the best way to work. Certainly is. Sean Carroll has written The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. The book uh, comes out today. Uh, thank you for joining us again on Cool Science Radio and continued success with your book and volumes two and three. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Randall Monroe, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the book, What If? and How To, which answers more of the weirdest questions you never thought to ask now in his new book, What If? Two. Monroe pairs clever research with charming comics to answer questions submitted by people around the world. Randall Monroe, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Uh, hi, Lynn. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming back on with us. We spoke to you with What If, and now you're back with What If 2. We thought it was so much fun. Just from the standpoint of, I guess, curiosity. And and is that what is really, is that the genesis? Curi wanting to for people to have curiosity by writing these books. I feel like everyone is curious about this stuff. And like sometimes people say little kids are more curious than adults and adults have lost their curiosity. But in my experience, adults are like wonder about this stuff just as much as kids, but they're more reluctant to ask, you know, like you, when you're an adult, you're supposed to have all the answers. So when you don't know the answers to something, you're like, oh, well, hopefully that's not something I'm in charge of. You know, I, I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to just not think about it. And so I tr I like I try to encourage people to say like no, you know, these questions have answers some of the time and we can figure them out uh, using using science and research and just thinking about stuff. So you were a roboticist for NASA and you left all that to hmm, draw some comics and write some books and have some fun. Can you explain what's behind all of that? 
Well, I mean, uh, it maybe that's a question you should ask NASA. Uh, they, I uh, st stories differ about exactly the circumstances of my leaving. Um, <laughs> but no, they they were great. I was working on on some cool projects. Eventually, my contract ran out, uh, and they decided, you know, they were like, okay, well, we're not renewing this contract, but we could give you another one, and then. Uh, uh, and I was like, well, you know, I've just started posting these comics online. Um, and so instead of like making a bunch of phone calls and doing a new contract, it almost felt like the path of least resistance to, uh, to spend a little while drawing comics because people were like wanting to order merchandise and t-shirts and stuff. And it was really fun suddenly connecting with this, all these people around the world who were into the same stuff I was. And so I figured I'll do that for a little bit and then I'll like return NASA's call and move to a new department there. Um, but it ended up being so much fun that, you know, uh, I don't know. I feel, it, it's just very lucky. I felt like I got to like leave one dream job for an even dreamier job. That was so that's been really, really wonderful. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Randall Monroe. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of What If and How To. And his new book, What If Two, has just come out. And we're speaking with him about that this morning. Randall, how do you go about calculating the mass of total electrons in a bottlenose dolphin? So I like this question because, so when I did my physics degree, I learned stuff like the mass of the electron. And if you ask me how much an electron weighs, like, I don't, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I feel sort of guilty. Like I'm, you know, like, oh, it's a pop quiz. I've got to prove that I know what I'm, what I'm talking about. And what I like about these weird questions is when you say how much do the electrons in a bottlenose dolphin weigh, like nobody knows that off the top of their head. Like I don't, I don't have to feel bad about being like, all right, well, let's go look some things up. You know, let's look at how much a bottlenose dolphin weighs and how much an electron weighs and how much the uh, the other particles that make up a dolphin weigh. And it's actually a little bit tricky because it's you can approximate it very roughly by being like, well, here's how much the heavier particles in an atom weigh and here's how much the electron weighs. But to get the answer precisely, um, you really need to know which mix of isotopes uh, are are in the dolphin, which kinds of atoms, because some of them are more, a little bit more electron heavy if they have fewer neutrons than others. Um, but if if anyone does ever like jump uh, spring that question on you, just so you know, the answer is about half a pound, depending on the dolphin species. Sure, exactly. You know, there's a lot of big questions out there that we're still wrestling with, like dark energy and dark matter and the nature of consciousness. Does it rise from matter? You know, where does it come from? And uh, thinking about those questions, the one thing I never questioned was uh, electrons. I thought we had our act together in understanding those. And and you write in your book that. Um, we don't really know why electrons get transferred from hair to a balloon and why don't they go the other way. And you you mentioned that the general theory for why some materials shed electrons from their surfaces on contact, why other ones pick them up, this phenomena called triboelectric charging, uh, is an area of research that we still don't know a lot about. And yet uh, electricity drives our world and... We don't we don't know everything about electricity. There's still some big questions out there. Yeah, it's funny. There's a, there was a there was a big review published just this year by uh, uh, Wee Chilshin and colleagues in Korea where they 
they wrote about this. They were like, yeah, friction-driven static electrification is familiar and fundamental in daily life, meaning it's like it's stuff children observe. Um, but its basics have long been unknown if, and have continually perplexed scientists from ancient Greece to the high-tech era. And they're like, right now we have no general theory for it. And it's And I just think that's so funny and cool that it's like, if you're like, hey, how come... How come, you know, in science class, when you do the balloon experiment, you rub it on your hair and your hair sticks up, like, okay, I get electrons move, but why? It makes you feel like I must be missing something. I must not be, you know, smart enough to understand this. But no, no one understands it. It's, it's, it's really cool. Um, there are all these very simple mysteries that are still the subject of like cutting edge research. Um, but, you know, we're solving them one by one. There are some good papers on this. Uh, up until about 10 years ago, I think you could really, really legitimately say we didn't understand why ice skates worked. Um, we don't, we didn't know why ice was slippery. Uh, there's a, there's a thing you'll often hear people say about how the blade of the skate increases the pressure on the ice and this causes it to melt. This has been the explanation, but we've known for 150 years that that's wrong. Uh, that 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 can't explain it. That can't explain why you can skate in cold air in really, you know, when it gets really cold. And and we finally have have basically figured it out. Uh, we figured out that ice crystals have a layer of water on them because of the edge of the crystal gets frayed. Um, but like this was this was research in the 2010s. And that's ice skates. We've we've known about those for a long time. Fascinating. So what is it that you say about why it happens when you have static electricity in your hair? So the electrons move from the from the balloon. To from, your, from the hair to the balloon, the I think. Balloon. I always have trouble with directions like that, but <laughs> yeah. I think it's hair to balloon. Um, and and why does that happen? Or what? Rather, you say this is one of the mysteries, but what? You know, if you're trying to explain it with someone with a much better grasp of physics than the average layperson, how do you explain why it's happening? Well, so people? when 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 any two objects come in contact. The forces, like the reason you can't push your hand through a table is because when you push your hand really close to the table, the electrons in your hand and the electrons in the atoms of the table are interacting um, they, and they're, they're basically repelling each other. And so, and that stops your hand because your hand's full of electrons and so is the table. Um, and the, these electrodynamic interactions are, the, are what... Um, they're responsible for basically all of chemistry other than some nuclear stuff and responsible for a lot of like the fact that the real world is tangible and that we can see it. Um, but, but when you put two different objects together, the atoms have different arrangements of electrons, you know, circulating, they have different, different uh, energy levels, different, um, you, you know, all of chemistry is about how the electrons around atoms are arranged um, whether there's a positive charge at this end of the molecule and a negative charge at this end, or, you know, whether electrons are free to move. And when you put two different materials together, instead of one atom, which is hard enough to understand, you've got several atoms near each other and electrons like being pulled and pushed in different directions. We don't really understand why the electrons make the jump in one direction from one side to the other, but it's something to do with the specific arrangement of atoms on the surface uh, of the two surfaces that makes one of them tend to want to steal electrons from the other. That's great. I, I feel like we just dismiss so many of these types of questions because we say, well, 
of course, my hand can't go through a piece of wood and it doesn't really have to do with electrons or, or it shouldn't um, <laughs> because it's a piece of wood and then we just dismiss it. But I have to say that there are there are questions in your book that I've had before that, I mean, a lot of the questions are are pretty ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah, like if yeah, the solar yeah. system were filled with soup to Jupiter. Um, but but what's great about that question is it was posed by a five-year-old. Um, and I just have to ask you about the nature of the questions in the book. Are are they real questions? Yeah, yeah. These are these are questions that people have sent in. Um and and you know, so a, a few of them come from like friends of mine from our conversations. But for the most part, you know, all, all, almost all my favorite questions are are ones that people sent in to me um uh uh because they wanted to know the answer. And yeah, I find that the questions from little kids really are the the best ones because adults try I think maybe try to ask questions that they think, you know, will make them that that sound smart, that sound interesting, you know, like they won't ask the questions where like, okay, that question sounds ridiculous, you know, filling the solar system with soup. I'm not going to ask that because and even, you know, they wouldn't ask why does my hand go not go through the table because they're like I'm going to I'm going to like sound like a little kid if I say that. But like a little kid has no problem. They don't understand, you know, they're everything's new to them, so they're just always asking like, "Hey, why does this happen? How come you can't walk through stuff? Uh what if you filled the solar system with soup?" Like they don't they don't try to ask clever questions. They just ask questions they want to know the answer to. And and I and I like it because oftentimes I don't know the answer either, you know, or like I'm like, "Okay, this is a good question. Let's go try to figure it out." Um so I, I, I think little kids definitely ask the best questions. Yeah, and that uh, that one person asked the questions, why don't we have catapults to launch jet aircraft, commercial jet aircraft, if they use so much fuel on takeoff? And, and so I don't know who submitted that question, but it was fascinating. I didn't know that you could get a big plane like that up airborne with just 20 or 30 gallons of uh, of aviation fuel now you once you get it up there you've got to get to your cruising altitude which probably takes i think you said a couple hundred gallons but you can take one of those birds and get it up in the air for just 20 you know and just consume 20 or 30 gallons of of uh, aviation fuel that's that's fascinating yeah they're incredible i mean it really what's incredible is is that I mean, gas is just an incredibly efficient source of energy. Um, there's a reason that we like have have you know in the last uh, century or so sort of switched so much of our society to run on it, and then uh, which has resulted famously in some some major problems. And so now, but you know, it's taken a ton of research to try to get batteries uh, good enough that they can store uh, uh, enough energy to run things like aircraft. And they're still not quite, you know, not there. Like uh, gasoline is just about, you know, one of the most uh, efficient, dense stores of energy. And so that's why they still use uh, uh, jet fuel, you know, which is a form of, of kerosene to run aircraft because there's just nothing else that you can put on an aircraft that will um, that will give it the immense amounts of uh, power it needs, but still be small enough to hold it in a, in a tank that the plane can carry. There was a project to do a nuclear-powered aircraft at one point. Um, I think they, because nuclear uh, uh, fuel is one of the few things that's way, way ahead of gasoline on on power uh, density. But uh, I think they had a problem that, like, 
if they wanted to put enough shielding to shield the reactor to make the pilot safe, uh, the lead shielding was too heavy for the plane to fly. And you could put shielding just in front of the pilot, but then anyone you're flying over is getting a dose of radiation as you go by. Uh, I think that project was sort of like canceled for very like uh, the reasons you would imagine. <laughs> I like the catapult. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. Want, I wanted to ask you, um, what one question do you have that hasn't been answered yet that you'd like to have answered? Oh, man. Um, I was just reading a bunch of those papers. Uh, you know, so there's the we talked about the electrons and why they move in the directions they do. But um, one question that one place where that comes up is when you have a thunderstorm, um, you know, uh, lightning is a big electric spark. And, and you'd think we understand how that works. Um, but it turns out the, so the way you get electrical charges in a thunderstorm is you have ice crystals drifting down or you have ice, ice crystals being lifted up by the updrafts and then little pellets of ice and, and snow and, and, uh, and water dropping through them. And the ice crystals bounce off of those pellets and transfer electrons uh, and it's exactly the same as the hair, the balloon hair thing. And, and that's why you get charge buildup in thunderstorms. So we don't understand those either. And there are a few cool mysteries about thunder, about lightning, uh, beyond that. We don't understand how it gets started. Um, it doesn't seem like if you calculate the electric fields in a thunderstorm, it doesn't quite seem like they're strong enough to get a spark started. And yet clearly they do. Um, and they also emit bursts of gamma rays, which we discovered in the 90s. And we don't totally understand why that is either. Um, you know, there's some things emit gamma rays, uh, but we wouldn't, weren't, it, it was a real surprise. It would be like if you discovered one day that cats sometimes emit like flashes of light. And you're like, that's weird. I mean, you know, there are animals that emit light. Fireflies do it. It's, and, and we don't understand everything about cats, but that's still pretty weird. Like we're, we're missing something important here. Yeah. Uh, so, Yeah. And wintergreen uh, lifesavers. Yeah, yeah. If you if you crush a lifesaver or even just a sugar cube, but the wintergreen, uh, the old lifesaver flavor works the best. Uh, if you crush a sugar cube in the dark, if it's really pitch dark and your eyes are adjusted, you'll see a flash of light. Someone told me that and I was like, that can't be true. I would have seen this already. <laughs> and I, I went and got a sugar cube and like went in the bathroom and let my eyes adjust to the dark and then crushed it. And I'll be, it, it flashed. It, <laughs> It was the weird, I was just like, whoa, this is like, I've discovered a glitch in the universe. Uh, this is not, I did not think this is how sugar worked. That's crazy. I'm, I know, I'm, right? I don't know when the last time was that I bought sugar cubes, but I'm going to have to go to the store and buy some now. The, you yeah. said that, I, I, I didn't know that. And no, I, I was an adult so when I learned that. this. It, it was not, you know... <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's not that important i guess you know like the the it it is it turns out it comes back to that same mystery of electrons so when you break a sugar crystal the the it splits into two parts and so there's like a face where it fractures and that face as it pulls apart something causes the electrons to jump from one to the other it's like you're pulling a rubber band apart and it snaps and when the electrons do that jump for reasons we don't totally understand, that seems to be what emits a burst of both um, uh, of visible light and even uh, ultraviolet light or, or even x-rays. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, if since this is since you have a big question surrounding lightning, 
the thing that comes to mind is now lightning is causing a lot of our wildfires in the West. Mm-hmm. And as much of our climate is changing and weather patterns are changing and extremities are changing in terms of what's going on with our weather, is lightning itself changing? And of course, this is not a question in your book, but I would be curious. I would submit that question to you for what if three. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not. I I don't know that lightning frequency is going up or down at the moment. Um, I think the the data is mixed on tornado frequency, but definitely as things are hotter and drier, the individual lightning strikes cause um, you know more. There's more risk of wildfire. You know, that's a if you have a drought-stricken area, lightning. Even the same amount of lightning that you had before is going to be a much bigger problem. It was inter- I was looking at a newspaper for some reason from 1896. It had like an end of year almanac in the back. And I just stumbled on this in some archive and I was like flipping through and I noticed, and they had like number of deaths this year from different things. And the number of deaths from lightning just in the United States at that point was like 250 a, a, a year, you know, like in the previous year. And that is 10 times what you get now. Like nowadays there's maybe 20 or 30 people killed by lightning in the US every year. And that was when the U.S. had a population that was a tiny fraction of what it is now. And, and that's, that's weird. So the lightning death rate, we've really improved that. And I think, and, and it seemed, from what I can tell, uh, a big part of it is just um, we're, we're less agricultural. We're spending less time out in farm fields. But we've also gotten better about, like, educating people, you know, knowing you learn in school, like if there's a thunderstorm, you have to go inside because, uh, you know, you don't want to be out in a field. You don't want to be a high up in a high up place. Um, and, and you know, uh, we have worker safety rules around this. Like you can't be working on a roof when there's a thunderstorm. And, and this stuff comes out of like gradually understanding more and more about how lightning works. We have good models for how the, the bolt finds its way through space so we can build buildings to try to direct the lightning to lightning rods and to try to figure out what places are at highest risk. Um, that is something we have gotten good understanding of and we build it into our fire codes. So, um, you know, uh, understanding physics and understanding science and solving these, these problems can help protect people, can help make our lives better, you know, and, and help, help us deal with the consequences of the other things we did with, uh, with that science, you know, and like mitigating our own harm that we've caused by climate change. Randall, about 75% of our uh, listeners are curious lay people. And and we have a show on quantum every once in a while, and Lynn and I get lost, and we're sure they get lost too, our listeners, uh, because we're all trying to get our arms around it. And and, and we're not trying to figure it out. We're just trying to understand some basics. And I wanted to ask you this, because it it, it might be related to electrons behaviors. uh, But I have heard, and, and this may not be true, that uh, in certain experiments, as we uh, observe subatomic uh, particles, that the behavior of the particle uh, mirrors the observer's expectation. And I don't know if that's true or not, but if that is true, is it possible that electrons, you know, have that same sort of thing? You know, the what if question, why it goes this way versus the other? Yeah, it, this is. There are some. There are some truly weird quantum experiments that I feel like I would read books from the fifth, from the fifties, sixties, seventies, and they would be asking these questions about like, wait, how can the observer affect the experiment, and how can like a decision the observer makes affect an experiment that's really far away? 
And, and I always feel like it's sort of, we go around in circles in a way that, you know, makes your head hurt and also makes me feel like we're sort of asking, like, not quite, we don't understand it well enough to be asking the right question. Um, you know, I think, I think, I don't think that there's anything special about consciousness in quantum mechanics. I, I think that what's going on is happening at a different level from that. Um, I don't think that like the observer is affecting which way the electrons go because we know they they always go the same way. Like when you have this material and that material, oh, it's consistent. It's consistent. Yeah. You know, it always it always goes from your hair to the balloon and not the balloon to the hair. And you can come up with these tables showing like it always goes from this material to this, from this to that, and then from that to that. And and you can even occasionally find places where it'll go in like a loop. It goes from A to B, from B to C, and then from C to A. Um, but it isn't, you know, it always happens the, the same way. And, and with, with some of these weird quantum experiments, like whenever you take something that's happening on the scale of an electron, and then you try to link it up to a big system, you know, like, a, a in the Schrodinger, you know, the experiment, uh, uh with the cat and the sure. box and the vial where you measure a single decay and then take a large scale action based on that, um, there is, it, I mean, it sounds silly to say, there's a lot going on there. Um, you know, the way you set up the experiment, the way uh, uh, things go from the quantum scale up to the, the big scale. Um, it's sort of the thought experiments maybe are, are not always capturing the complexity of what's going on. Because like even just rubbing a balloon against hair is complicated enough, let alone observing the polarization of an electron. Um, I think there are, there are some genuinely weird things going on with quantum mechanics that don't quite fit into our way of understanding the world. Um, for the most part, when I try to link it up to things like consciousness or, or um, you know, the nature of reality in the sort of more human sense, I feel like that often kind of leads you astray. It kind of leads you down blind alleys that are just have you sort of more confused by the end of it. Um, so I don't know if there are answers to that kind of stuff there, but but there are there are some truly weird physical things going on um, just that quick, I I certainly don't understand. Yeah, just a quick question before we let you go. Um, if you look at the at the at the pyramid of of the cool kids club, you know who's the coolest <laughs> on the planet? In the 1970s, at the top of the pile were rock stars. Have nerds taken over that position? Are nerds huh. the cool kids? I, I I don't know. I think. So from from what little I understand about being cool, like mm. the core component of coolness is seeming like you don't care about whether you're cool or not. You uh, know, like well, the like, nerds have that. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, like I mean, I think um, the, the the I think the the really cool people I know are the people who have just they're sort of like they, they are confident that they're cool and they lean into it. Um, I I don't know. I think I think that there have always been you know people doing science stuff who science people thought were really cool and were excited about. And, you know, there are always, always were and always are going to be rock stars who, who people are excited about. And, and I don't, I don't know if one of them is, you know, if they're, if they're waxing or waning. Um, I, I do know that there are just a lot of people who are curious about science and interested in it. Um, and it's, it's, to me, really cool to be able to uh, uh, write about this and find find this kind of an audience. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it's cool or not. I think that sort of depends on who you ask, but it's certainly cool to me. Good. 
I like that. That is a great uh, statement to wrap this interview on. Randall Monroe, we're so excited that you could join us on Cool Science Radio. The book is What If? with a question mark, number two. Randall, thank, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. 